If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, we're going to be working our way through verse 6, from verse 16 through verse 21. Now, John 3.16 is arguably the most well-known, well-quoted, off-sided verse. You see it in the end zones of football games. You see it at, at uh, NASCAR rallies. You see it all over the place. You see it at all these sporting events. You see T-shirts. You see bumper stickers. John 3.16. People know John 3.16. And it, it talks about God's love. But really, whether you're inside the church or outside the church, there's something that, that stands in the way of you understanding this verse. We read of God's love and we, we think through God's love and in, in the way that we interpret love is, is shaded. It's shaded by your experience. It's, it's molded by the life that you live. The way that you've seen life it, it, it plays into the way that you translate love. So when you, when you read this verse and you say, for God so loved the world that he did this thing, you, you think on these weak, anemic expressions of love you've seen. Think about the weddings of friends that you've gone to and, and, and you were there and you were sitting and, and, and they were up there on the stage and you had the bride here and, and the groom here, and they were facing one another. And the person that is officiating it is leading them through these vows. And so she turns to him. She says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to spend my, my life with you. And all this, this high language, talking about how much she loves him. Likely all through the counseling time, she's looked at him and said, isn't he just the most adorable person you've ever seen? And the counselor felt really awkward, a little bit queasy at that point, and said, whatever you say. <laughs> and we've got the groom there, and he's, he's going through this same thing, and he's talking about just how beautiful she is. And when he's taking the vows, he looks at her in the eyes. He said, I love you. I'm going to love you as long as there is breath in my chest I'm going to do everything I can to protect you. He is defining for her what love is. In the counseling sessions, he told the counselor, he says, isn't she the most beautiful woman that you've ever met? Again, the counselor's feeling a little bit uncomfortable and says, well, I'm, I too am married, but she is quite handsome. We know this couple. Maybe some of you are a part of this couple. You can think back to this wedding that you're a part of, these great professions of love, these great promises made, and then years later, things go horribly wrong. These claims that defined what love is, what love is have, have come up empty. These claims that have really founded, this is the cornerstone of what love is, that when love is tested, when love is tried, they are found to be empty. You think of the more juvenile ways that, that love is expressed and, and somebody says, man, I love tamales, but I'm not such a big fan of some of these other places. Man, I, I love chilies or I love my car. And, and we toss this word around or you think back to, to any student that you've seen and, and they go from loving one girl to the next girl to the next girl. And, and love is, is really a little bit below like when we finish messing with this word. 
We've destroyed what it is to understand the word love. So if somebody comes to you and says, friend, did you know that God loves you? You say, well, isn't that nice? And as you interpret it through your frame of reference, you think it's nice, but it's not lasting. It makes me feel good right now, but it won't be around forever. You see, as we walk through this passage today, John offers us, through the words of Jesus, this reinterpretation of what love is. And so the question before us is, how does God define love? Let me read the entirety of the passage for us, and then we'll walk through the first three or four verses together. Picking up in John three sixteen, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son in the name of the only son of god and this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So as we open up this passage, and, and, and this is on the heels of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, where he is leading him through what it is to have eternal life, what it is to enter the kingdom, what it is to see the kingdom of God. And then John opens up in verse 16, and he says, and the reason these things can happen is because God has loved the world. And he's done it in a, in, a, in a very particular way. You see, he doesn't just write and give this demonstration and say, look, <clears throat> take it as a matter of fact, God loves the world. Take it as a matter of fact that God loves you. Just, just trust me on this, God loves you. But instead, he does it by defining the term. He says, God loved the world in, in, in this way and in this much. And the text tells us that he gave his only son. If you've memorized the King James, it's his, his, his begotten son, right? But he gave, and what the text would have us understand is they gave his one and only. He didn't have a, a whole horde of sons. It's not that God was marching through heaven and said, I, I like, no, no. And then he comes to the drummer and he says, you, you're the least. I choose you. You see, God looked through the expanse of heaven. And with the situation of sin, he knew there was only one way to remedy sin. So he looked to the second member of the Trinity, he looked at Christ, and he gave Christ. This is the way that God demonstrates love. This is how God is defining love. That God gave the son over. That Christ willingly submitted his life, that he was given over. But for what purpose? Is it just so that you can know how to treat your spouse? Is it just so that 
You can know how to be a, be a godly parent? Or is it just so that you can be an upright and productive member of society, a productive citizen of Greenville, Texas, of Hunt County? No. Those things logically flow from this. But for what purpose did God give his son? God gave his son, the text tells us, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see, Jesus didn't come into the world so that he could make your life better. He came into the world to save you from something you could not save yourself from. Jesus came into the world to effect a change you couldn't change on your own. He came into the world to radically alter the sum and substance of who you are, the trajectory of where you were headed, and you could not change this on your own. And what does it require of you? It doesn't require, it only requires, the text tells us, belief. The text tells us that this saving mission of Jesus, that he came into the world so that this choir might be saved. That he came into the world so that, that, that Jim could be saved, that he came into the world so that Trey could be saved, that he came into the world so that Mike could be saved. And what it requires on them is belief. It requires belief on your part. He sent the Son into the world to save. And so unless you read this text and you think, eternal life, what is that? You see, what's laying before us is one of two things. There's eternal death and there's eternal life. There is eternal death, which is separation from God. There's eternal life, which is life lived in the presence of God. There are two things before us. Send his son so that we might not perish, but we might be able to avail ourselves of eternal life. Now look at this. John further explains it for us in verse 17. He says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This tells us that, that Jesus was not on this mission of condemnation. It's not that he came in and he planted a flag and said, You are all gone. He didn't come to establish the fact that humanity was lost. He didn't come in to go to people and say, look, you are separated. He's not driving in their guilt, but instead he is offering them salvation. Jesus didn't come to establish the fact that they were lost. In fact, the text tells us that he has done this, that some might be saved through him. The son didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, there is only salvation in Jesus. The text paints this beautifully. You want to know who in whom you can be saved? It's Christ. You want to know by the agency of what person you can be saved? It's in Christ. He is effecting change that you couldn't even hope to begin to change on your own. We might be saved through him. Now look what he says in this linchpin verse in verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Friends, if you're here today and you believe in the Son, if you believe in Jesus, you're here today and you believe in him. This text tells us, as it did the initial audience that received John's letter, 
then we are not condemned. But look at this. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What verse 18 tells us is that Jesus, he hadn't come into the world to drive this flag of condemnation to declare the lostness because that lostness is established already. A lot of us, we like to define this mediating stance, and so you're not a Republican, you're not a Democrat, you're an independent. And that's the way that, that people my age are moving. They don't want to be Republicans, they don't want to be Democrats, they want to be somewhere in the middle. They don't want to, they don't want to choose sides. I, I, I don't want to isolate anybody. I don't want to cut off my options. What if something better comes along a little bit down the road? We, for, for it, in terms of countries, we want to be Switzerland. Things are nice here. I'm well taken care of. The view's tremendous. And I don't, have to get met, I don't have to get messy with this business of war. We want to plant ourselves firmly in the middle. But look at what he tells us. To choose not to believe is to be condemned. There is no in-between. There is no safe non-decision. To not believe in the Son is to disbelieve. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's not because you're a bad person. It's not because God arbitrarily flipped some coin, it landed on his hand, and he said, it looks like Tom's not in. It is based upon the lack of belief in your life. Let us turn our attention and contemplate and spend the next few minutes thinking about what it is that we are called upon to believe. For those of you who have surrendered your life to Christ, think about the the decision that you made to believe and how it has transformed and is transforming your life. For those of you who have, have yet to yield your life and you are not living your life in such a way that demonstrates that you have made a decision for Jesus. The consequences of not making a decision are eternal separation from God. There's a choice before us. It is eternal life with Christ or eternal death opposed to him. You see, the world The world likes to say, you only live once, so live it up, live it up until the sun goes down. But if I am the light, it's time to stand up for the truth, right? To light up this world and shine so bright you think the sun's on the ground. Like the sun, S-O-N, is in your town, but you're only seeing me, though. If you're looking for the way, let me point you to who we know. God's spirit is inside me, so I'm living for my hero. And when the spark turned to flame, baby, that was ground zero. See, I used to live in the dark, man, kind of like a basement. My heart used to love sin, but he came and changed it. So look what grace did. Man, I couldn't live without her. I've got no strength on my own because now I'm living solar powered. I'm getting bright lit. But this ain't no light switch. Man, I can't turn it on and off, so Lord, please come and ignite this. 
I want to be that flame in the dark where no light is. Man, while I'm still in this frame, I want to show them who Christ is. Because, yeah, I'm young and unashamed. I'm living bold for the king, but, man, this is not a game. I serve him with my life so the world thinks I'm insane. Man, I'm covered by the sun, so I'm ready for his reign. Man, I was made to light it up. I'm like a city on a hilltop. And I know the only way, so hit me up if you feel lost. We're living bright, so bright. Man, you better put your shades on, you know, lower your frame. Because when his glory shines, you won't be able to help but lower your frame. So bring it on, bring it on, because this is more than a poem. Man, it's a purpose and a plan like before I was born. And I'll be living this until I'm gone. Are you with me? If we're shining brighter than the sun, let's take it past the moon. Let's show this whole world who we are and what we do. Let's be that new generation that takes no hesitation to show the bright lights of our Savior Christ through our salvation. And with our minds on things above, you can say we got hang time and Jesus is our coach, so we're ready for that game time. This is go time. Man, I'm wasting no time. And YOLO, man, that's a no-no because I know we're living one more time. See, we are saved, right? Programmers, I guess we're like a floppy. But we refuse to be a wicked world's carbon copy. We flip the switch like a DJ so we're deaf to the world because now we only hear what he say. Because in case you didn't know, Christ did his job fully. And he proved that he was God when he died on the cross like it was his duty to pardon my iniquities that I committed so rudely. He resurrected from the grave just to tell death to excuse me. But excuse me, this is your life and that's something that I can't impose on. But your body is God's home, which was alone about to get foreclosed on. See, an air quote Christian, man, they look right, but they live wrong. They can't stand the conviction of Romans, so they just try to get comforted in the book of Psalms. But don't worry, because I'm almost done. But before I leave this stage, we all have worked in sin and death was minimum wage. But if it wasn't for Christ, we would have almost gotten paid. So God, show me what competes for your throne on the seat of my heart so I can leave that stuff alone. All I know is that I'm prone to wander and to roam. So God, please put some fire in these bones. By your spirit, please make me strong. Let my light be on because it's time to make him known and illuminate the dark until he comes home. It's time to make him known and illuminate the dark till the day he comes home because this is our God.
as we pick up where we left off. We read in verse 19, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. John gives us this really clear picture. He said, look, God has given the Son. He has sent the Son. Jesus came and he dwelt among humanity. He walked the streets of Jerusalem. He walked the streets of his hometown. He came in flesh and lived among us. And this is how people responded. said, the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Now you read in the text and it says their deeds were evil and you look inwardly and you say, man, I am not evil. You look at this and and we want to draw comparisons on ourselves and you say, look, of, of the list of people I know that are evil, I'm thinking Paul Pott, I'm thinking Hitler. I'm thinking Mussolini. I didn't like the mustache anyway. And, and then you go on and you start thinking of all these people that are truly heinous and evil. And you say to yourself, I am not them. I've never masterminded a holocaust. I've never sought out to kill people. I've never done these things. I am not evil. But this is what the text describes. This is what the text describes. It says their works were evil. See, any work that's not done with God at the center is necessarily opposed to him. So you think of pride, you think of deception, you think of greed, you think of envy, you think of lust, you think of jealousy compounding effects of these things or any one of these things taken individually are enough to separate you from God. And those in darkness, those in the world, you and I, we were formerly in the same idea. We were formerly in the same situation. We were lost in darkness. But all those who refused to believe they love their deeds. They love the safety and security of darkness. They love this, this veil that covers them, that envelops them, that makes them seem that they are invisible without judgment. God, as light of true light, sees into the darkest heart. God, as light of true light, sees into the darkness that you've enshrouded yourself around. He sees your deeds. He sees your heart. He sees you bent on self-satisfaction and gratification. And Jesus came to be the light to expose that, but all those who dwell in darkness do so because they don't want their deeds exposed. The text tells us they love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Look at verse 20. He says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This is the sum total of this whole thing that there is this this calming presence in invisibility. There is this calming presence in the darkness that you don't want to come into the light because you don't want to be exposed, to be laid bare before a holy God who already sees where you are. You're not hiding this from him. 
You're not keeping him from recognizing exactly where you are. And friend, he saw you in his omniscience, in his all-knowing, before he ever sent his son to die in your stead. He saw you mired in your disbelief. He saw you stuck in your pride. He saw you stuck in your hatred. Lost. And serving as a slave to your passions and your lusts. And he sent his son and he gave his son over anyway. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. Now this isn't saying that, that, that Christians are those who walk around doing the true thing as opposed to the false thing. This is an idiomatic expression. I mean to be the people that practice righteousness. I mean, they're not afraid to come into the light. Well, why? Is it because they're necessarily such good people? No. See, Christians aren't better people than anybody else. They're not. There are people who are forgiven. They're they're not better people. They didn't have better test scores. Their teachers didn't check off on their report guard and say, Micah, he's a great student, uh, probably because he's a Christian. You are, anyway, we can talk about that later. It's not that they look at you and say, he's a better person because he's a Christian. And that's why he deserves to be in the light. That's why he deserves to be in the light. See, look what the text tells us. This is the difference. Whoever does what is true comes to the light for what purpose? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is the Christian looks inwardly. They know there is no good thing in them. They look at the situation they're in and they recognize there is nothing they can do to affect this. They look at the darkness, they see the the warmth of the light and they come into it and they are exposed. This is what it is to come to believe in Jesus. It's to stand before him. Or probably a better posture is to kneel and to cry out, God save me a wretched sinner. Save me from my pride. Save me from my envy, my greed, my lust. Save me from myself. Because that's what it is to be in the light. So when you see a Christian stand before you, you don't see a better person. You see a redeemed person. You don't see a person who has saved themselves. You see a person who has cried out, God, save me. A person who has stood into the light in every misdeed, in every misstep in their life is fully exposed in the light and they cry out, God, save me from these things. There's no security. There is no warm embrace in darkness. There is only separation from God. See, the text tells us in verse 16 that God loved the world and he gave his son so that people might have salvation in him. If we were to look back at verse verse 14, we read that Jesus says that, that he must be lifted up. The son of man must be lifted up. See, this is what happened. In eternity past, God established how he would rectify sin, how he would save humanity. And so he set in the purpose of the Godhead that he would send the son to redeem sinful humanity. 
So Jesus came in perfection. He came in flesh. He was born in a, in a nothing backwater town to a no-name family. And he came and he did the thing that you and I can't do. He lived a perfectly sinless life. And at the end of this life, his creation, some of the people that cried out when he entered so gloriously into the city, Hosanna to God on the highest, some of these same people cried out, crucify. And they took Jesus and they they lifted him up on the cross and they nailed him to this cross. And as he hung on this cross, he was suffering the wrath that all of us rightly deserve. As he hung on this cross, laboring for breath, he took all of the wages of our sin, he took all of the punishment that you and I ever deserved. This most tremendous display of love and wrath that's ever recorded is found in that moment. See, God didn't send his son to give us a pattern for how we might model our lives. He sent his son to be a ransom. He sent his son to be a propitiation. He sent his son to suffer wrath for us. You see, but this text describes in this lifting up, it doesn't stop there. It's not just this suffering servant who died on a cross, and the story ends there. You see, if that's all there is, and this is a tragic tale of a hero who failed. This is a, a tragic tale of a hero who wasn't able to finish his task, but Jesus, as he was hanging on that cross, as he breathed out his last breath, as he was entered into the tomb, God raised him up from the grave three days later. You see, that's, that's what we believe in. We don't merely believe in a Jesus who was crucified and is still dead. We believe in a Jesus who was crucified, who entered into the grave, who was raised up and is raised up still. We believe in a Jesus who, who raises us up. We believe in a Jesus who changes us radically, who calls us into light from darkness, who says, leave this darkness, leave the pride, leave the envy, leave the lust, leave all these things that are keeping you mired in disbelief. That's how God loves. He doesn't love us with empty promises, with things that he can't fulfill. He loves us to the point that he sent his son, his one and only son, to die, to be entered into the grave, to be the subject of humiliation and derision. And he loved us to the point where he raised his son up so that you and I might have eternal life. That's how God defines love. God defines love through the one sacrifice that you and I could never do on our own. Easter is about receiving the love of God at the hand of Christ. How do you define love? How do you receive his love? Let me pray for us.